0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Russo, CEO and founder of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne specializing in personal robots. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my guest today, Mark Pivak. Mark is the primary inventor of FBR's automated bricklaying technology. He's an aeronautical and a mechanical engineer with over 25 years experience working on the development of high technology equipment, ranging from lightweight aircraft to heavy off-road equipment. Mark, welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Nikki that's quite a mouthful as an introduction (laughs) so you're obviously highly competent doing what you're doing Um, with your background in aeronautical and mechanical engineering how did this lead you into the field of robotics
1: i'll uh, i'll give you the long roundabout story because like a lot of things in life it's not what you originally planned uh I got into aeronautical engineering because uh, back in the 80s I was a very keen windsurfer and still am now. And uh, I was really interested in fluid flow and aerodynamics and all the sorts of things which are involved in windsurfing. Um, So I ended up doing an aeronautical engineering degree and became, and always was interested in aeroplanes, but decided that would be a good field to work in and uh, joined the Royal Australian Air Force and worked with them for a few years. And while I was there, uh, I really wanted to build really accurate fins uh, for my windsurfing. So back then, I built a computer-controlled machining centre, um, which are a lot more common now. And you know, a lot of people build hobby versions of those things, but 30 years ago, that was not so common. Uh, so I did that in my back shed, and that sort of led into a real interest in automation and so on. And um, through that, I got involved in building CNC routing machines, um, which ended up being used for pattern making and cabinet making uh, in various industries, particularly in the mining industry for making patterns for big mining spare parts and wear parts in ball mills and crushes and drag line buckets and all those sorts of complicated things. Um, and the interest in mining sort of also came from my dad, who's a mining surveyor. So I was born in Tom Price, which is up in the northwest of WA, but fortunately I didn't grow up there. That <laughs> ended up working for Alcoa. <laughs> and I grew up in Mandra, which is a coastal town about 100 kilometres south of Perth, so much much nicer place than up in the northwest, even though the northwest is beautiful and, and as far as mining towns go, Tom Price is probably one of the nicer ones that you'd find. So, Dad had used to bring home from work, you know, the latest and greatest in surveying equipment. And, you know, some of those bits of instrumentation back in the 70s and 80s cost, you know, many times what our house cost. And he'd occasionally show me how they worked. And I sort of got quite interested in all of that and used to go out on the weekends and help Dad, you know, with jobs he'd do on the side. Um, setting out land and measuring up sand pits and that sort of thing. So, I kind of eventually ended up um, with a little bit of cross disciplinary knowledge that I guess people don't often get, where I knew a reasonable amount about optical measurement from surveying, uh, and I ended up knowing a reasonable amount about uh, automated machinery and robotics from building CNC machines. And I knew a reasonable amount about systems engineering from being an aeronautical engineer where you deal across the whole systems involved in an aeroplane. So that's how I got into the field of robotics, even though I was trained as uh, an aeronautical engineer.
0: Listen, it's a fabulous story, and I mean, it goes to show that your, you know, what your parents do are actually in a way quite important. Because without your dad um, getting you to along to tinker along all of this, you could have had a completely different uh, career, so to speak.
1: Absolutely, I think we're the sum of many different parts, aren't we?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, how was FBR started, and what came first, the de- technology or the application?
1: So this is one of those unusual ones where the technology came. First, and it actually came in in a series of steps uh, in once again a long roundabout sort of a way that um, didn't really have an application for quite a while. So, as I mentioned, my dad was uh, a mining surveyor with Alcoa, and early on. they were looking at machine guidance and how they could automate some of their surveying process. So in the very early 90s, I wrote a proposal which didn't end up going any further with them, and it was to use uh, some vision technology to measure exactly where an excavator was in real time uh, in the pit so they would know exactly where they're digging. And once again that's through an unusual set of circumstances because the the ore body which alcoa was mining um, is very distributed so the pits are actually quite small and it's also uh, quite variable in quality so they actually have to try and and blend the what they're digging to achieve a specific blend for the refinery and they've got another complicating factor that if they dig too far they dig into stuff called reactive silica which Um, really increases the cost of the processing. So they're trying to dig the right stuff and trying to not dig the bad stuff. So that's what drove their requirement for it. Mm -hmm. And of course, now they've got automated um, systems which measure where the machines are. But 30 years ago, that was just a dream. So that's sort of triggered the interest in um, machine automation on a big scale. And like I said earlier on, I was building uh, routing machines, which are like machining centres. And um, I also had friends working in the marine industry in WA. And uh, I got a little bit involved in some of the design work there. And one of the really unpleasant jobs which they have to do after they weld up a big aluminium boat is it ends up all distorted, so then they go and put epoxy filler on it and then a team of guys come in with big long sanding boards and and sand it all back. So if you've ever sanded back your windowsill to put a new coat of varnish on, you know how long that takes. Well, imagine how long it takes on a boat that might be 100 metres long. So I thought, well, if we could make a a machine to do this and we measured where it was with optical surveying and could get all that feedback uh, control to work, that might be a much better way of doing it. Anyway, with the technology that was available back then, I kind of figured out it would be a massive R&D project, would cost tens of millions of dollars, and there might be a market for one of these things. So I didn't even bother trying to um, to make it. And also mentioned how these routers were used uh, for building patterns for the mining industry. Now it's one thing to actually shape a big piece of wood or or um, piece of tooling board that you've got. But you have to make up an approximate shape for that first. And that's traditionally done manually, you know, with guys cutting out bits of wood from a drawing. And I figured, well, we could probably automate all of that. We could have a machine which would just cut lengths of wood. And then the router itself could go and grab the different bits of wood and stick it all together. Once again, I figured out, you know, global market for these, are not many not Many machines, anyway, in 2005 there was a building boom in WA and quite a shortage of bricklayers to the point where it was headlines in the local papers you know, building boom, price of getting a brick laid skyrockets to a dollar fifty a brick or something. Uh, and one of my customers at the time made a fairly flippant comment to me and said, Oh, Piv, you should. Uh, Build an automated bricklaying machine. Look at this. You could have something on rails that went around the outside of the house. I went, click. No, we need something on the end of a boom, and we'll measure it optically, and program it to lay the bricks, and that'll be easy. So it's turned out to be a really good solution, but it's turned out to be far from easy. Um, So I thought, oh yeah, bricklaying's not that big an industry. Um, that's not worth doing, but i'll have a I'll have a Google and just see if I can find out how many bricks get laid. So the first clue was when the ABS actually keeps statistics you know that it's a reasonable size industry you're looking at. Yeah. So I dug in there. How many bricks get laid in Australia? The answer came back one point five billion. Mm-hmm. And I thought at a dollar fifty a brick, that's a reasonable size market. We could have a go at that. Yeah. Um, so that's how it came about. So the technology, I won't say was uh, developed first, but it was certainly the principle of uniting optical measurement technology with real-time control of machines that was sitting in the back of my mind, just waiting for the right application. It yeah. was big, potentially big enough to be able to fund it to sort out a myriad of problems so,
0: yeah, so on top think... of
1: that and it was also waiting for the right time because back yeah. in 1990 it wasn't possible and in 2005 it was barely possible and even now we're the only ones in the world that can do it so you know, I guess you could say that it's only just possible now.
0: So what is Hadrian X and how
1: does it work? So Hadrian X is a mobile machine uh, about the size of a uh, large delivery truck which you might see driving around on the streets Uh, and on the back of it it has a complete robotic processing system to receive pallets of bricks, unpack those bricks and then send them out along an articulated telescopic boom which can extend out on our current version of machine 24 metres and that will build Uh, most average size residential houses in Australia. So the way the machine works is you drive up to site, uh, fold out some legs, similar to what you might see on a crane or a concrete pump, then unfold the boom, similar to the way a concrete pump boom unfolds. And then we load bricks into the back of it on a pallet. We just use a forklift or a telehandler to do that. Inside the Hadrian there's a saw and Uh, several robots which do the brick handling in there, and then we have a transport mechanism inside the boom which sends out individual bricks out to a laying head. And Another part of our setup is we set up some fairly advanced surveying equipment uh, and we register where the slab is, we measure where the, the building slab is, and then that ties into the coordinate systems which the Hadrian itself uses. Uh, so that we don't have to precisely set up where Hadrian is, it just has to be in an area where it can reach all of the building site. And then any sag or wind deflection on the boom, uh, we actually measure the end of Hadrian with that same measurement system. And that's coupled into the control system so that the robot on the end, very end of the boom and the boom itself, uh, correct for any variations in where, where it should be and end up positioning the brick very precisely on the walls. And then we also do all the other ancillary things we need to do along the way, such as cutting the bricks. That's all done robotically. Applying adhesive to the bricks. We don't use mortar uh, for several reasons. Firstly, in Europe, mortars generally not used these days. They use a construction adhesive because it has uh, much lower thermal conductivity than mortar. So in Europe, they use big insulated bricks and we saw that the European market is really very big and ripe for automation. And we've introduced that technology into WA, which has also been well received. Um, So we do the cutting of bricks to the correct length and we also do the application of the adhesive. One of the interesting things is that Hadrian works a little bit like a 3D printer. But instead of squirting out a a liquid material that then solidifies, we place down bricks and each brick can be imagined to be like a voxel or a a volumetric pixel. What that means is that we're able to build the walls very quickly and we also build the walls layer by layer. So the whole building appears to emerge out of the ground, so to speak, Uh, and we leave holes. Or spaces for the doors and windows. And because we're down at millimeter precision levels, um, the doors and windows can be pre made off site and then just simply fitted afterwards. So we found that it's a very uh, fast, accurate, and we also achieve a very good finish. And one of the big benefits to it is it enables parallel manufacture of other building trades as well. Because we know exactly what size the building's going to be built to. So the following trades don't have to come to so- or don't have to wait for the bricklaying to be finished. So they can come in and measure up what size you actually ended up with. We already know what size it's going to be. So things like roof trusses and interior fit out can all be done in parallel. And then building a house becomes more of an assembly process rather than a, a measure it, make it process as it has been in the past.
0: So in terms of the bricks that you're using, are these specific bricks that you've designed or is it your average brick that's, or, or is it like you, you can only use one type of brick for this house?
1: Yeah, so Hadrian can handle a range of bricks. That's one of the complicating factors, uh, which we had to overcome is we wanted to be able to handle quite a variety of bricks. Now it turns out that humans have been making bricks for six to ten thousand years, but they've all been designed around the human hand and what the human hand can lay. So, a long time ago, when the technology existed to only make solid bricks and humans uh, were smaller than they are now, the bricks were basically made to suit the human hand, and you know were quite small. As technology has developed and Automation has been introduced into the brick manufacturing process. Um, bricks have evolved to become larger with voids inside them, uh, to the extreme where you take, for example, the large insulator bricks, which are manufactured in Europe by companies uh, like Wienerberger They are nearly all there with just very thin walls of clay. So what's that what that has meant is that. The bricks have been able to get bigger, but only as big as what a human can still lift and carry and handle. Now, when you introduce robotics, you go, well, we're no longer constrained by that size limitation. What would an optimum block look like for a robot? So on that basis, you'd say, well, perhaps we can go to a much bigger block the problem there is that the brick manufacturers aren't yet geared up for that. So it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg situation. Um, If there was something around that could lay the bigger blocks, then they'd make the bigger blocks. But we've had to design a machine that needs to lay some blocks, but the big blocks don't exist yet. So it's that kind of chicken and egg thing. So we've designed Hadrian to handle a range of block sizes uh, from the very small ones, which humans used to lay in the past and still do in many parts of the world, right through to the biggest blocks that are currently available. And our next model of machine is being designed for a block which will be twice as big as that again. And all of that sort of leads to an increase in efficiency. Uh, And then you start to look at well, what else, if we're already producing blocks optimised for robots rather than humans, what other things could we do to that block which could improve it? And the accuracy of block laying has meant that we can now consider laying each block at a particular point in space rather than relative to its neighbours. And then we can look at what we might put in that block which would help the following trades. So, another factor we've been able to introduce is uh, alignment of the core holes inside the block, which then makes it easier to pass services like plumbing and wiring and so on uh, vertically through the walls because you've now got holes which all line up perfectly. So the quick answer is, yes, we can lay human blocks, but that's not an optimum for a robotic solution. So we're also working on block designs and we have produced our own block designs optimised for robots. And in the future, we see a combination of both with eventually robot-optimised blocks becoming the norm.
0: Okay, so now, with the, um, the actual shaft of the arm laying the, the, the bricks, how does that happen? Does, is that already loaded, or is someone loading the bricks on there?
1: So the bricks are loaded into the back of Hadrian with a forklift, and from there on, it's a completely robotic process. So the first part of the process is a robot takes off a row of bricks, and then places it on a platform where they can be inspected by camera. If the blocks need cutting, another robot then places the block into the saw, cuts it, stores any offcut for future use. Our program also looks ahead so we know what cut blocks are coming up. So in advance of when we need the, the saws already cutting the blocks. And then there's robots inside the base of uh, Hadrian which handle the blocks and then feed them out along the boom. So our actual laying process is pretty much is free of human hand involvement. So the machine is loaded by machines and then from there on, everything happens robotically.
0: Okay, so two things spring to mind immediately for me is the, the time factor and the, just the shrinkage with, um, I, I, we built a house in South Africa, so I'm, I'm actually well aware of how many bricks got broken on site just in just the delivery of it. So um, talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so there's two aspects to that. The first is that traditionally a builder won't know very accurately how many bricks they'll need to build a house. Um, it'll either be based on past experience or they'll do some rough take-off measurements. Of course, as as CAD modelling has become more common in the housing industry, those estimates are getting better. And when builders do repeat builds, they get to know more about how many bricks might be needed. But our process starts with creating a 3D model of the complete house. And as part of that, we automatically generate where every brick and every cut brick needs to go. And then we can optimise the use of cut bricks so that we end up using the off cuts and it's possible for us to build an entire house with only fractions of a brick as waste and we can order exactly what we need. Uh, on the broken brick side of things, because we're handling direct from pallets of bricks, we actually have a bit less handling involved than what's traditional with um, manual bricklayers. So we actually find that we have a very low breakage rate Uh, and then of course the machine internally also inspects the bricks and rejects the ones um, which aren't up to standard which may be cracked or have missing pieces on them
0: listen i can see all sorts of applications for this but um COVID now, of course, has affected all of us, um, but as I understand it, you you had quite a productive year and you uh, built three projects. So a residential display home, a commercial community centre and a two-storey test structure for international partners. Now, is this all, all in West Australia? And, and tell us about it.
1: Yeah, it's all been done in Western Australia. Uh, We had intended to be heading overseas and doing some more demonstration work overseas, but of course that's very difficult with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have kept up our uh, team's meetings with uh, all our overseas partners and we're currently negotiating and working out a number of different things uh, to help us get Hadrian into global markets. Uh, One of those was the Mexican demonstration build of a two-story structure of the style which is built in Mexico, and we worked very closely with GP Vivienda on that. Um, as much as we would have liked to have built that house in Mexico, that wasn't possible, so we took their plans and, you know, in the digital world you can demonstrate and communicate pretty well what's going on, uh, so we built that one on our site. We also do a lot of other test builds um, for different builders all all over the world and also local ones here on our site. So not everything we do is publicised. And our first residential build uh, was done at Dayton last year, just after the COVID pandemic sort of shut things down in WA. Um, Fortunately, WA has, I think managed the pandemic very well and you know, we're basically back to business as normal apart from travel in and out of the state and particularly overseas. Uh, but at that time we were able to um, work outside our, our factory gates and it was time for us to go out and demonstrate that this works not just on our premises but also out in the suburbs when you have to deal with all the all the ramifications of a real building site and that worked really well to the extent where the builder that we partnered with on that build said, "Oh, I've got a commercial centre which needs to be built. Um, how would you feel about mm-hmm. using Hadrian for that?" So, uh, a month or two later, we were we were on that commercial site building that one. So um, that was really good. And as much as we would like to be out, you know, building every week, we've only got two Hadrian machines. One of those is going through a major upgrade to increase speed and change the way we handle um, bricks to make it more efficient. Uh, That's well underway. Uh, So really we've only got one machine that has been available for most of the the COVID period of time. And we've had to do various development work and and demonstrations, one of which was that uh, Mexican build. So we've been absolutely flat out. Uh, Our team size has changed. From being quite large to then quite small, and now it's on the on the upswing again. As uh, COVID, at least for the moment, seems to have settled down, uh, particularly with its impact in WA. Although when you when you see the news from around the world, it's it's um, it's taken a bit longer to resolve than what I thought it might.
0: Yeah, I think we're still in unknown territory there, and I think things can change um, pretty quickly. I think we are fortunate. I think we are fortunate. fortunate in Australia, on the one hand, that our numbers are so low, but it's a bit concerning that, our, oh, um, you know, we haven't really rolled out our vaccine, which, because our numbers are so low, you know, vaccines are needed otherwise in the world, other places in the world. But I think that could come back to be a problem for us. But... Yeah, look, I mean, I'm sure that there's experts all over about COVID and everyone's got very strong opinions about it. So I, I try and uh, keep out of it in public spaces about my opinions about it because, of course, I'm based in Melbourne and we had like severe shutdowns here and lockdowns here where we couldn't, literally couldn't move. So I think you have been very fortunate in WA.
1: Definitely. Definitely.
0: So so tell us, like robotics, um, we all know the uptake of robotics in Australia um is is maybe not as high as we would like it. What what's been the response uh to Hadron X with regard to the builders, developers and manufacturers? Um how have they reacted to this innovation?
1: Yeah, look really well, Nikki. The big issue with introducing new technology into the building industry is it's gotta be a 100% solution. You can't go there with a 90% or even a 99% solution. You've gotta go in there with something which absolutely solves all of their issues. And that's what Hadrian does. It, It goes in there and it solves all of their problems. So we've had great response from builders, not just locally, but throughout the world. I've said in North America and Europe where we see really big markets for Hadrian. Um, the biggest issue we have is just the timeframes involved in getting the whole construction pipeline on board. So, Although we're still laying bricks, um, some things do have to be a little bit different. But that's not really the big issue. The big issue for us really is just scaling up the technology. Uh, and we've got really good plans as to how we'll do that. And um, it's an exponential technology. So it looks like from the outside, not much is happening. But every year, you know, we've been plotting this for the last 15 years that the project's been going. You know, how many bricks have we been? How many bricks around the world have been laid robotically, and, and how many bricks is Hadrian laying robotically? And what people tend to do with exponential technologies, as you probably know, is that they really tend to overestimate the short, short-term impact that something will have. You know, they think, oh, it's all going to be in the industry tomorrow, and you know, the, everything's going to be changed. But they tend to also severely underestimate the long-term impact of it. So, you know, when mobile phones first came out, people thought, oh, great, you know, everybody's going to have a mobile phone next year. And it probably took 20 years for mobile phones to become ubiquitous. And we majorly, majorly underestimated who would have them. You know, when they first came out, we thought, oh, yeah, they'll be good for business people. And, you know, they'll be the only ones who have them. And now, you know, I don't know if your kids have got them, but my kids have got them. You know, so in our family, we've got five mobile phones. We used to only have one phone before. Now we've got five. Um, and, you know, there's part, places in the world, you know, like one of, one of the engineers uh, used to work in Africa. And he said there, he remembers walking through a village one day where he saw this incredibly poor person who didn't have shoes on their feet barely had any clothes on and they had two mobile phones because in that particular country, there were two mobile phone networks and one phone couldn't call up everybody that he needed to talk to. So, you know, that just goes to show how in the long term, we we just dramatically underestimate the impact of technology. And Hadrian right now is at, at that early stage where people are still thinking, oh, why isn't it there, you know, it mustn't work or something because it's not everywhere. <laughs> but I think what you'll find is it does work yeah. and we're on that growth curve where over the next years and decades, it will become ubiquitous. And the amount of construction technology or the amount of construction work that will be done through robotic technology is is just, you know, it will eventually be almost all of it You know, in the same way that if you walk into a car manufacturing line these days you know there's hardly a human to be seen other than yeah. the people that maintain the robots you know so you know back in the days of henry ford you'd have a production line and there'd be you know 10,000 people working on the production line and now there's maybe 10 people in a whole factory that's turning out you know a million cars a year so yeah, I-
0: I agree with you, Mark. I think the fact is that if you don't see it, doesn't mean it's not quietly happening in the background. It's just, it is just, it will, it will, you'll see it and then you go, oh, nothing's happening. And then suddenly it's just there and, you know, just exactly. everyone's using it.
1: Yep. Exactly. The take up of um, commercial or industrial robotics in Australia has been reasonably low and that's because most of the manufacturing in Australia is highly customised we don't produce the massive quantities um, of consumer goods that are produced overseas you know we no longer have a car industry here and ours was sort of on the way out as robotics was coming in Uh, and we don't have a lot of the manufacturing industries that we traditionally associate with robotics But what we do have, um, we do have quite a big uptake of robotic kind of technology in the mass customisation areas like cabinet making, uh, metal working, where we have a lot of CNC lathes and CNC machining centres and laser cutters and a lot of machines which are highly automated and are suited to producing lower numbers um, of items. you know, I remember 20 years ago, um, my company started using um, CNC machinery for metalworking. And just talking to a lot of um, other small metalworking shops, you know, which had manual machines, you know, they were going, Oh, this CNC stuff, it's all too hard to program and too hard to use. I said, No, it's not. When it's linked up with the right CAD software, it's easy. And I showed, one guy how it all worked, and, and he got right into it, and he went all CNC, and now it's almost completely reversed. You walk, you walk into the average engineering shop in Perth now, and you're struggling to find a manual lathe that's all CNC. You're struggling yeah. to find a manual milling machine, and there's almost nobody marks out with chalk and cuts out a steel plate with an oxy cutter manually anymore. That, that, those days are gone. You know, you just do a DXF file, transfer it to a laser-cutting service and get your cut steel plates back ready to weld up. The industry has just changed so much in 20 years, and the next change coming along is going to be in construction, and we're just at the start of that now. The difficulty with construction has always been dealing with the variation. Almost every building is different. and there hasn't been the CAD systems to be able to program all of that complexity until recently. Um, so we've really gone through and, and closed up all the gaps in the technology chain to enable the true introduction of robotics into the construction industry on a mass customization basis. Mass customization being like mass production, but not producing millions of the same thing, you're producing millions of almost the same thing, where we're laying bricks millions of times, but they're producing different shaped houses at the end of the day.
0: So in terms of education um, in, in West Australia, TAFEs and things doing building courses, is, do they have a robotic component in it?
1: They don't yet. and. Um, They've been really struggling to keep up with the training demand for bricklayers. There's been an undersupply of bricklayers in WA for years. We've now got a building boom happening from uh, the incentive work, which was done for COVID recovery. So we've got massive demand for bricklayers. Uh, there's not enough trained, but similarly, some areas of construction, they do have training around robotics you know, like in the cabinet industry. Um, robotic machinery, CNC routers for cabinet making and automated panel saws are pretty common, so they do have that training stuff. But typically, I think the TAFEs and training institutions are a bit reactive. They kind of only provide the training when industry is demanding that we need these people trained in that. And the introduction of Hadrian is about to happen, um, but I think... TAFEs and so on will be a bit uh, reactive and take a few years to get up to speed for that. So we're actually training our own operators internally. And we're also offering Hadrian as wall as a service rather than selling machines, because we understand that builders are not that interested in training up people in new technology and operating robots. They want to build houses. So they just want to be able to buy the bricklaying service the same way that they buy a manual bricklayer services, except that it's going to be done with a robot. So as far as the builder's concerned, not much different. Uh, As far as the operator's concerned, they'll be our Adrian operators, trained, ready to go. At the moment, not in the TAFE system, probably in five years. I, I think they will be through the TAFE system.
0: So um, how long did it take to do the residential house that you built there during COVID?
1: I think that one was about four days.
0: Wow. Um,
1: and in the future, our holy grail is to be able to turn up on site, build a whole house and get off the site in a day. And our next model and machine should be able to do that.
0: And what's typically a, a, a bricklayer if they build a house? How long does it take them?
1: Uh, depends how good... The weather is. Yeah, always a
0: factor,
1: yeah. For two reasons. Uh, If it's rainy, obviously they don't want to be outside working in the rain. And if it's good surf, they probably don't want to be laying (laughs) bricks. (laughs) So you want the right weather.
0: (laughs) Not too bad
1: (laughs) not too good.
0: (laughs) No wonder you've got a problem in West Australia. Like in Melbourne, there's never good weather. So we're always working
1: here. (laughs) Well, that's part of the problem, you know. Yeah, yeah. now, seriously, look. If it was a big team on a on a on a simple build, uh, and they had a good break with the weather, you know, they might be out of there in two weeks. But typically, your smaller teams, which are typically two bricklayers and maybe a labourer, you know, they could be on site anywhere from two to six weeks, maybe even longer if it's a big big house. So it's quite a big time saving involved.
0: Yeah, I reckon so. Typically, how many bricklayers would be on a job site doing that, Mark?
1: In WA, the typical number is about three.
0: Oh, so it's not huge?
1: No, so they typically do... A typical brickies team for a single house in Western Australia is two or three guys. And like I said, they'll be on site anywhere from two to six weeks, typically.
0: Wow. And
1: Hadrian... Uh, Currently we have quite a few ancillary staff because we're developing and monitoring the machine, but in terms of operators, it actually needs two. So we have one person operating Hadrian and really they're just supervising uh, and dealing with any unusual situations and one person operating the, the handler, loading the bricks in the back. And we think eventually that might even get down to just one person, which will be the telehandler operator with an automated Hadrian, uh, and that should be it on site. And so how does a, had
0: Hadrian Sorry, how does Hadrian get to site? Does it is it okay to drive, or do you have to? Is it no, to it's a
1: okay. standard road registered truck.
0: That's it. Okay. All right.
1: So it drives down the road, hundred kilometres an hour, and um, goes anywhere a normal truck can go.
0: Uh, except you do not want Hadrian involved in any accidents, is what I would be no. thinking. No, thank you. <laughs> so how's the robotic construction landscape developed since the project first started?
1: Yeah, there's quite a lot of interest around the world in robotic construction. Um, it's such a huge industry. You know, it's, construction's a multi-trillion-dollar-a-year industry. And across the board, we've seen increasing automation, ranging from the design side of things, where you know it's changed from paper plans through to CAD models on computers, and now BIM, which is Building Information Modelling, and uh, what they call in the construction industry 5D, which sort of goes on to include the project management and tracking of commercial projects, and that's starting to find its way into residential construction as well. So on the design side of things, things are getting pretty automated, and that's a really good enabler for Hadrian as well, because we like that um, interface to the digital world. On the actual construction side of things, there is quite a bit of automation off the building site. You know, so when you look at things like the manufacture of cabinetry and furniture, that's all pretty well automated with CNC machines. Steel work is you know handled with automated beam lines and and welding robots and stuff like that. But as soon as you get to the job site, it's only been mechanization rather than automation. So you know we're using cranes now to lift stuff. We're using tally handlers to lift and move things around the job site. We're using Bobcats and you know mini excavators to do the digging work. But none of that's really automated. Um, so we're kind of one of the first to really introduce proper robotic complete automation onto the job sites. And around the world there's quite a bit of interest in 3D printing as well, just in general, but most of that has been um, squirting out liquid materials like a concrete yeah. which you expect to harden on site. Look, that's great technology, gives you a lot of flexibility and fairly simple programming. But the, the couple of big problems, which I think that 3D printing doesn't address is the finished quality of the wall, the building speed, the climatic impact. A lot of those materials to cure properly need fairly controlled environments, which we don't have traditionally on a construction site. Um, and the setup time. So a lot of those 3D printers are a gantry kind of structure where you have to build a machine that's bigger than the house site you want to build. Um, And that is something which our dynamic stabilisation technology could address. Um, But we haven't gone down the 3D printing path because FBR and myself firmly believe that bricks is a much better solution in terms of getting a finished quality wall Using a, a product which was produced in QC in a factory environment of known dimensions, uh, and we can build square and rectangular buildings, which is which are the most useful kind of buildings, um, and the small amount of um, complication with curved walls and so on. And by the way, Hadrian can't build curved walls, so you know there's no issue about design flexibility. Those sorts of things, but you know, windows and doors and furniture fit into straight-lined, right-angled buildings much better than they do into curved buildings.
0: You know, I, listening to you reminds me of an interview I had with Professor Toby Walsh and he said to me, you know, eventually with all the, the ro- robotics that will go on, people like carpenters are be going to become real artisans in their in their craft and trade. like, And they will eventually in years to come be able to charge whatever they like because um, it's going to be such a niche to get someone to actually make a handmade, um, you know, cabinet or bookcase or something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, history moves along and, and you know, technological progress moves along and, and industries adapt and, and people adapt. And I think, you know, there'll always be a market for bricklay, for manual bricklayers. Mm. You know, it's, it's extremely unlikely that you're going to get a robotic solution to come in and knock down a brick wall that's inside your house and build a new brick wall or put you know, doors or windows in something. And there's always going to be situations where it's too tight to get robots in to, to build in brick. Um, and, you know, there'll be a lot of artisanal brickwork as well. You know, you walk around London and you see some of the brickwork that was done there and you just go, that's just amazing, that's awesome, that's that's the kind of work that bricklayers should be doing, yeah. not whacking up the, the walls in, um, you know, greenfields residential urban sprawl where it's just the same thing over and over and over again. Let's do that stuff with machines and let's get our brickies doing real artistic stuff. Because let's face it, nobody wants to do the hard yakka stuff and why should we? We've got technology and robots to do all the heavy lifting. Robot doesn't care whether he's lifting 20 kilos or 100 kilos all day long, million repetitions, but humans aren't made for doing that sort of thing. And I just look across, you know, all different kinds of industries and you look at how automation and technology has affected them. And it wasn't that long ago when 50% of people were involved in the agricultural industry just to produce our food. Mm. Now it's less than 1%. Yeah. You know, and and nobody's Mm -hmm. nobody's noticed that. It's not like we've now got 49% unemployment because all those farmers are now not working all those people are doing other jobs which we never imagined you know
0: yeah i think it's all this doomsday (laughs) around robotics and it's going to take your jobs and um i was it's chatting.
1: change your jobs is yeah they? it's
0: going to yeah I, I agree with you i was chatting to michael mulford and he said to me you know all these uh professors and like real experts that open up conferences making statements like by 2022 which is next year um and some at some conferences they've been played back the opening statement of maybe a conference that they said something three years ago and you know, by this stage, this would have happened. And, I, I, you know, I agree. Look, the robots that I work with, they're not going to take anyone's job. It's assistive technology. It's it's like your phone. It's another piece of technology you can, you know, use to make your life easier. That's what it is.
1: Yeah, but I think people are probably really underestimating the impact those robots will have in 30 years' time.
0: Oh, definitely.
1: You know, but everybody's looking at the short term, oh, what's it going to be in the next two years? And I think these people who open these conferences, you know, they've got to be a little bit, uh, you know, optimistic and <laughs> and make some real good headline statements or they will get invited to talk, you know. So.
0: My opinion is they need to be very careful because everything's videoed, so it's going to come back to bite
1: you. Yeah, I can see you're, you're going to get in touch with me in a couple of years ago, Mark, this didn't happen.
0: Yeah, here we were talking. Now, speak to me, young man. Mark, so what's next for FBR? Are you looking into the development of other robots um, to take on different aspects of construction?
1: Yeah, look, we are. Uh, There's a few different aspects to our business. Um, The first and primary aspect is demonstrating the technology that we've got and showing how it can really assist construction and solve a lot of the problems that the construction industry has and show them a pathway to a future of uh, robotic construction. Of course, we're also working on our next uh, Hadrian machine Which handles bigger blocks will be faster with the aim of being able to get onto site, build a house, get off site all in a day. We're also working on some of the technology involved in the machines, um, which has opportunities for improvement, either cost reduction or reliability improvement. A lot of the technology we use is out of other industries, so either out of the indoor factory automation industry or say the aerospace metrology industries where we're taking that technology out into a much more rugged environment of construction so we have to ruggedize some of that technology and we've got it all working pretty well but there's always uh, room for improvement and we're on the path of industrializing and commercializing Hadrian which means getting it sorted out Enough that we can start to really mass produce Hadrians, you know, thousands or ten thousands of units to get out there and and really make an impact on the construction industry. And then off to the side we have the other applications uh, of construction robotics, so things ranging from uh, automated concrete pumping and concrete levelling and screeding, through to automated roofing. And right now Hadrian kind of sits as the first application of that technology.
0: So we favourite topic of people that have got something against robots say it, it takes jobs away. So what what career opportunities um, has Hadrian actually created for people in the field of engineering and robotics in Australia?
1: Yeah so right now I can absolutely say that Hadrian has not taken any or put any bricklayers out of work and we've created up to 155 high-tech jobs in WA. Right now, we employ about 60 people, but our peak was about 155. Uh, and, look, that number's going to increase on quite certain around the world as Hadrian goes into bigger production numbers and starts to uh, influence the construction industry. And, look, we employ a whole range of people ranging from the people who build Hadrians, through to those who design them, operate them, do the programming and so on. So they're different jobs. And, look, what what I think you'll find is that as Hadrian has an economic impact on construction, you know, the, the total value of construction is not going to go down. So if you make something more efficient, what that means is the volume of production is going to go up. So that means either we're going to start providing more or better quality housing for people who don't have it and those who do have it generally want to live in better houses. Yeah.
0: So with population increases, a shortage of workers, I think worldwide we're going to see this and lack of housing. How will FBO address global needs?
1: Yeah, so look... The obvious place for us to introduce Hadrian is into the first world, where it's used to technology, uh, and there's generally a labour shortage, particularly in the construction industry, where it's you know dull, dirty, or dangerous work, um, or highly repetitive work, um, and a skill shortage to do that sort of work. So that's that. That's the first low-hanging fruit, but we surprisingly had a lot of interest from uh, countries which traditionally have been regarded as having a really low labour rate, like say Mexico or Brazil, um, really low cost labour. But the problem there is that they either don't have skilled labour and they also have massive shortages of housing. So they're sort of stuck on both, both sides of the fence. They've They've got a massive demand which they can't meet because they haven't got the supply of construction workers um, to do it. So there's also a lot of interest there. And, you know, some people might think at first thought that, oh, you'll never get get an expensive machine like Hadrian into those markets because their labour cost is so low. Well, I'd just point to the use of hydraulic excavators in those markets. You know, you could hire a thousand people at the drop of a hat for a couple of dollars a day to go and dig holes. No problem at all. But when you go to the big construction sites, you see hydraulic excavators working there. Lots of excavators. And that's because you simply cannot get enough people around a hole to dig it manually anymore. You need to use the mechanisation that's available. And it turns out to be lower cost than trying to manage all those people and get them to turn up and, and it's far easier to tell one guy with an excavator, that's the big hole we need dug, go and finish that today, than to try and manage a team of 500 navvies for three weeks while they muck around with spades and shovels trying to dig the same hole. So the automation is inevitable, absolutely inevitable, and Hadrian provides a real solution uh, to both the skill shortage and a solution to the pent-up demand that's there. For humans to have reasonable shelter
0: look you know i think i think technology automation it is going to displace people but i don't think it's overnight so the writing's on the wall for people to go whatever industry you're on if you think you if you think you're going to be displaced you'll probably have enough time still to go i can go and reskill or re-educate myself
1: definitely absolutely it, These things, like you say, don't happen overnight, but the impact of the change is much bigger than most of us could ever possibly imagine.
0: Yeah, and it's Uh, here to stay, regardless of what what we think about it.
1: Yeah, and, you know, there's there's a lot of um, examples in history. You know, like people thought that professional photographers would be out of a job when digital photography came around. But it's almost gone the other extreme, like photographers are in high demand, you know, like even the stuff which is supposed to be done by people taking selfies, um, you know, all the influencers have photographic teams (laughs) following them to make sure they get that perfect shot. Um, My daughter's, my middle daughter's into horse riding and I just thought, this is really interesting. There's seems to be quite a few horses around I, i'm not a horse. i wasn't naturally a, interested in horses at all until my daughter got into horse riding anyway i did a little bit of digging around and pre-automobile in the us there were about 20 million horses and i thought wow you know you see pictures there's a classic picture of the streets of boston where i think it's about 1903 There's a photo of it, and the street is just chock a block full of horses and horse drawn carts. And they said there were 7,000 horses working in the streets of Boston at that time. The numbers might be a bit wrong, but it was that sort of order. And then it had a picture just after the First World War. There wasn't a, I think there was one horse to be seen in that picture. So that's how much it could change in that time. And I thought, wow, there must be almost no horses in the US. So I Googled it. And apparently there's still 10 million horses in the US. Even yeah. though they're not used, we think, they're not used commercially anymore. But the racing industry's growing. The equine sports industry's growing. The pet industry of, you know, just keeping a few horses in your paddock has grown. And there's still 10 million horses, which is half as many as there ever was. And you just think, but this is... This is amazing. So even though technology moves along, things which you think might disappear don't necessarily disappear. It's just people's roles and jobs change.
0: Yeah, they just use in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So Mark, in closing, what's something that you've learned over the journey? I mean, you've got vast experience. Um, what, What would you like to leave our listeners with?
1: Yeah, the one thing I've really learned is the potential impact of exponential technology and how people think linearly. So we tend to overestimate the short-term impact and we dramatically underestimate the long-term impact. That's the one thing which I've learned which then applies to, to so much across the Hadrian technology.
0: I suppose it's that the theory of compound interest. You know, you eat one donut a day, like or one donut a week, it's fine. Eat a donut every day and you'll you'll soon enough <laughs> see the difference. <laughs> I'll bring it down to my level, donut. <laughs> <laughs> Something
1: like that. <laughs>
0: Something like that. <laughs> so is it okay for me to put your email address in the show notes if, if someone would uh wants to speak to you or reach out to you? With, is that okay with you?
1: Uh what I'd rather do is you put the FBR contact Perfect. Address, yep. Which is on our website.
0: That's uh, fine. I'll I'll get that the right one it and gets
1: filtered accordingly. Yeah, than,
0: that's fine yeah you being in dated with 20 emails that you're going who are these people why are they contacting me <laughs> well
1: if it was only 20 it'd
0: be all right but, um... <laughs> so mark thank you so much for your time i greatly appreciate it um i think you're one of the, the great companies and examples of what uh, australian innovation and what we're doing in the robotics space so i'm I'm very grateful for your time i am deeply appreciative and for our listeners um As Mark said, if you do have any questions, I will have an address there for you to reach out to him and join me in another week's time. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Nikki.